This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Rob Beer. Welcome back to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host this week, Rob Conneveer. I'm a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures. If you're listening right now and you have any comments or questions during the show, give us a call here in the studio. Our number is 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. Well, I'm thrilled to welcome my next guest, Andy Price. Andy, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Rob. So Andy Price is possibly the world's most interesting man. If you were to see him here in the studio right now, he looks just like the Dosaki spokesman. And it's probably appropriate that he's been recruiting technology executives for 25 years. He spent 15 years building the leading executive search firm in California, closes around 300 searches every year in technology. And now Andy is founder of his own executive search firm, taking a new strategy. It's called Artisanal Talent Group, where he helps portfolio companies address their senior executive needs, board hiring needs. He's easily one of the best connected executive recruiters in the business. If you were to think about technology executive recruiters, The same way you think about sports agents, you would know who Andy Price is. So, Andy, how did you end up in the recruiting business? Yeah, I had a personal connection. Coming out of college, the guy said, hey, you should come work for me, and I'll just teach you how to do this. I'll retire, and you'll have a great career. You're kind of a um, weird mixture of skills. I was a bit technical, programmed in two languages, super curious, journalism major, loved to interview people, super, super interested in understanding new technologies and people and what drives them and, you know, love human beings and interacting with them. And did you say you were a programmer? Yeah, well, programming in languages? The number one worst programmer in the Western Hemisphere, yeah, number one, which is why I became a recruiter. So is there a family connection at all yeah. to this? Yeah, there was, yeah. The first, the first guy was my father-in-law, as it turns out. And then he retired, and I ended up working with one of my best friends from um, college, this guy Dave Malarkey. We took over another firm called Schweikler Associates, rebranded the company, took it from like three or four people to 60 people and $30 million business, number one in Cali. So you say something there like we just went from two people to 60 people or from a small group to a large group. What's involved with scaling an executive search firm? You know, it, it may be for people that aren't familiar with executive yeah. search. What is executive search? Yeah, it's, you know, it's an interesting question. I think it's a loaded question, frankly. But I'll try to be brief in my description of the industry. It's a professional services kind of business that looks a lot like a law firm or an accounting firm. And the whole business is about – it's theoretically about taking on a project the way an attorney would. If you're getting divorced, if you're selling a company, you hire an attorney, you retain somebody to solve a problem. You theoretically retain a recruiting firm to solve a hiring problem. The problem is, is that when you really get into the business, and we were, you know, we we're making a lot of money, we we're having a lot of fun. It was really neat to hire people. It was neat to be number one. And we got a lot of accolades, a lot of external, you know, press and different rewards and what have you, and different awards and what have you. But I looked at the business clinically always because I kept comparing it to my clients, thinking I'd rather be running their companies than my company, and. Um, I just realized that scaling a professional services business is kind of a lousy business at the end of the day because what you do is you add capacity ahead of demand constantly. So you're on this treadmill of adding people, and then you fill up the demand, and it becomes sort of a, a funnel and demand-oriented you know, sales type of business, and you get away from the real business, which, uh, you know, frankly speaking, I think is about investing in your clients. And, and I think that that is the really interesting business. So – it's not like search people should be venture capitalists, but what they do is they have an unfair front seat advantage into studying their clients. And if they have that, then why wouldn't they concentrate wealth on their best clients? That's a way more interesting business than paying the taxes on professional services fees and yeah. signing leases. So you were talking about solving problems for clients. So that means, for example, you could have a technology company of a certain size that needs to hire a head of marketing or needs a new CEO or needs to fill a hiring role. How does that process typically work? Because I think for people that serve on boards or venture capitalists, people have a pretty good idea what that process looks like. 
But for people in the technology industry that haven't done that, what 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 goes on? Yeah, it's a great question. How I does think, that whole process work? Well, it's kind of like the Wizard of Oz, where there's like this possible little midget behind a big green curtain, and no one really knows what that guy's doing. And that's similar to how the clients think of the executive search industry. Were you the midget? I was definitely the midget. And you can see I'm not a very big man. (laughs) But in all seriousness, I think there's a lot of mystery to how the sausage making of an executive search process works. And every single human being in the executive search industry has a unique way of going about the project. I think what um, is lacking in the industry is, is is a formulaic approach that they can believe in. So when you hire other firms you, you, in d- different walks of life, you know, different accounting, for example, you know what you're going to get. You, they're going to churn a bunch of information. They're going to charge you hourly or by project scope or whatever, and you know what's behind the curtain, so to speak. In a search business, you don't know how they're going to go out and inventory who you should look for. And I think the, the biggest gap in the industry is always about why are we looking for this person? What's really happening with this company? What are the real true goals and objectives? How do we measure those? And then – score someone against those metrics, those, those that needed Yeah, and I, I kind of mean stepping back even further from that. So from a client perspective, you have a weekly call. Yeah. You kind of agree on what are we looking for, who are the people yeah, the that we'd like to see. Yeah. What is that process like? And then maybe go into the sausage making. Well, I think that the um, people jump into these processes and they start getting these weekly calls without actually asking really hard questions before they start the weekly calls of – are you sure this is what you want, or were you given bad advice before you called me? Oh, do you even need a VP of marketing? Yeah, exactly. Like I, I've, so I've said no to probably millions of dollars of business over my career, many millions of dollars of business, because I thought, hey, you don't really need this person. You're getting bad advice. You're too early. You're not willing to pay this person. The organization is misaligned. So I think the, the best search people upstream of this process you're describing where you're getting these weekly calls and you're trying to riff, basically, because they're, they're basically jam sessions, if you will. Where you're like, oh, I like this person, don't like that person, what, why Why didn't you like this person, why did you like that person? You're trying to do pattern recognition and calibrate constantly. But the real issue is, like when, is upstream. It's the scoping of the role against what the company's objectives are. That is the number one thing people should obsess about. Getting that piece right is, is everything in my mind because you fall on someone in the end that solves that pain. You know, Search should be a pain-killing exercise. My company has pain. I can't deliver product. I can't sell the product. I don't know why I can't sell the product. It costs me too much money to sell the product. The marketing isn't right. I don't have the funnel metrics together. I, you know, uh, we're positioned wrong. Um, we don't have our financing together. There could be all kinds of myriad issues that lead to a perception of a need to hire an executive. You know, we could go the second half of this hour and talk about why people should avoid executive searches half the time and just cultivate their bench, but I digress. I mean, so the, I guess what I'm trying to say is that the process works the best when you really, really ask hard questions. The search people are are vested; they have a vested interest in the outcome to the point where they're curious enough to ask the hard questions that lead to the right spec. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think one of the things people may not be as familiar with is the basic process. The basic business model is a fee for a service, and right. you were talking a little bit about it when you say accountants or lawyers, et cetera. But to break it down, it would be – if I wanted to hire a VP of marketing or a CEO, mm-hmm. it's a fee for service. So it might be on the neighborhood of like eighty to $100,000, yep. depending on the quality of the firm, et cetera. It gets billed in three installments, and then people see a slate of candidates. And then to a certain extent, it's almost like a – I don't know if a marriage counselor is the right thing. But when you get down to the candidates that you're really excited about as a startup and you start to make offers, then you give guidance because just like an agent on a house, you want – the house to get sold yes and you want the person to join and you play a role where you're really helping it come together in a way that's adding value for everybody yeah totally but what you want i'm, you, I'm talking yeah. about when it works yeah, exactly yeah. And, and when it works is when you care when the search people care enough about the outcome that they they don't want to just close someone they want to close the right person that they're highly confident is going to make a big impact on the company right and i think now it's it's getting really interesting you, you see a lot of business model innovation as you know and the companies that are really making it are companies that are that are just really efficient at distribution. It's not about like, hey, I built a really interesting ASIC or a widget like you and I grew up in, you know, eighty thousand years ago in the semiconductor industry and telecom equipment and we're all connecting people to the internet. And it was a lot of physics and a lot of optical transmission of this or that. And you know, it was a technical challenge. Now you have fewer technical challenges out there other than in the frontier categories like quantum computing and what have you, know, autonomous and what have you. 
And it's much more these days the mainstream investing categories, as you know, are about software and distribution and distribution efficiency. And so you have to take a more clinical approach to scoping out what does a marketing executive look like in the context of the business model you're trying to scale, right? And that's a very – that's an interesting discussion that's very company-specific. If you don't have those conversations in the front end, it doesn't matter how, fall, how much you fall in love with a candidate. The worst thing that I see in search is that entrepreneurs fall in love with candidates for the wrong reasons, and you've got to talk them out of well, that. Let's, let's talk about that in just a moment. Yeah. If you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Cunnybeer, and you're listening to Launchpad on Sirius XM 132, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm here in the studio right now with – veteran executive search executive Andy Price. He is the founder at Artisanal Talent Group. If you have a question about what it's like to either be recruited or to bring in a recruiting firm or how you should think about building out your management team or joining a company, give us a call here. Our number is 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So, Coming back to what you were you were talking about, maybe expand a bit on that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons I started this new company is because, A, I figured out I wasn't going to be a great venture capitalist. I got bored with my last company, went into venture capital, learned some new tricks, decided that this new firm was going to be much more about being really high touch with a number of much smaller number of clients than I was typically used to working with. Because I was super curious about if we can go much deeper with the client understand what they're trying to do, deliver a really, really interesting impact, high-impact executive, the returns on the company would be more interesting, and then if we could get a chance to invest in the company, we'd all win. What does high-touch mean? High-touch means you really obsess about a company. I mean, you're not just taking a client and saying, I'm going to charge you some money, I'm going to go spin up some people, hustle a bunch of executives and get them to talk to you and try to hire one. It's all about, I'm going to study you. Figure out how I understand can the business. Truly understand the business. Who are what, the competitors? What's the product? Yeah, what are your critical path failure, points of failure? What are the internal dynamics going on? What are the board dynamics? What are your VCs want of this thing? Like what are what are the internal pressures you're dealing with? You really have to spend a ton of time with the entrepreneurs to get in their heads to truly understand the things that they're not going to tell you unless you know what to ask. Is that Awkward for entrepreneurs sometimes. In round one, yeah. It's all about building trust because you have to be willing to do that first meeting, build that trust. The second meeting, build trust. They have to see that you genuinely care about the outcome of the company before they open up. And when they open up, they really open up. Because often they say, hey, we just want you to go hire this exactly. person. Here's the spec. Go find the people. Exactly. Why, why am I talking to you about our product? Because, why am I talking to you exactly. about our competition? Because they're used to hearing all about how bad recruiting is as an experience, and that's the problem. They hear it, and so they just go, eh, here's a recruiter. I'm just going to tell them the basic. I'm going to have them go run around see what they can do, and meanwhile, I'll work my own network. My VCs will throw some candidates at me, and we'll see what happens. I think the recruiter can do better than my own VC network, which is kind of a toss-up lately. And, um, and I think that – the entrepreneurs that detect that you actually have a meaningful and very deep interest in their big success, not just incremental, but big success and big outcome, that's when their eyes light up and they reveal what the real issues are. And if you get that insight, you go, okay, here are the internal issues. Now let's look at the external issues. And you start thinking about, hey, why is Atlassian trading at like 18 times sales? Like, do we want to replicate Atlassian? Do we want to replicate Twilio? Do we want to be DocuSign? Who do we want to be when we grow up? And you start studying the comparables and the peer groups and the business models that you want to replicate that are appropriate for your business. And that becomes a very interesting conversation. Then you can do highly targeted recruiting. You can call 10 people and end up with a perfect candidate versus calling 300 people spraying and praying. That's, to me, where the search industry needs to go. Yeah, and I think one of the things that especially early entrepreneurs don't understand is how much you also have to sell leading candidates. Exactly. Because the best people to bring into these roles have lots of options. Exactly. So they need to get fired up about what you're doing. That's exactly right. The high-touch approach needs to extend to the candidate population where they don't feel like they're being treated like a bunch of veal, like a bunch of cattle, herded around and prodded into a process where people are kind of low-touch. They're doing spray and pray flyby meetings and interviews that aren't really meaningful. And I think the people that detect that you're taking a high degree of interest in them for a specific reason, why did you call me? I, how do you in mind you're a very highly targeted person, a high-value target for me, and why? And that's a really interesting dynamic with, um, with, I think, good search processes. And we're not the only ones that do this, by the way. There are other great search firms out there that, that take this approach with the candidates where you do a big bear hug. And, you know, you're going to get a lot more return on your time investment if you bear hug the best people than fly by with 20 Right. So you built 
Schweikler or SPMB, not by myself, with a group of people, and scaled it. And then you went over to venture capital. What was that transition like? It was wild. Uh, first of all, it was a. Um, I thought I became the dumbest guy in the room. That was great. Not that I was the smartest before, but I was definitely the dumbest you know, going over to Index Ventures and Redpoint. And um, that was delightful. The people were incredible. I, I, I really going into a situation where you, the empathy for the entrepreneur is extremely meaningful in both of those firms. The way they think about these entrepreneurs, the way they talk about them when they're not around. I mean, it's just eye-opening. And I don't think that a lot of VCs out there are paying just lip service when they're saying, hey, we're pro-entrepreneur. I think they've actually, I think they truly believe it now. I think they used to shoot at entrepreneurs' feet, not these firms, but I think venture capital. Would you sit in a partner's meeting yeah. at Redpoint? Yeah. What is a partner's meeting like? Like, what's, where is it set? How many people are in the room? Is it a big yeah. mahogany table? What does it look like? Yeah. Well, there's, you know, I was only in the really informal ones. I, I didn't get into firm inside stuff. I was a venture partner, right? So it wasn't more – you can't really get into the inner work, especially you because – You go into a Monday meeting, right? Yeah. A well, Monday sometimes. morning decision meeting. You'd sit through one. No, not necessarily. Let me explain why. I didn't think there was enough work in doing human capital for me after running a 60-person, $30 million company um, and running tons of searches at a time. There wasn't enough work for me to be busy in one firm, so I took over human capital for two firms and ended up taking a third over at Kosla for a little bit. Um, and uh, you know, so when you're between firms, you can't go totally native, and they can't. You know, there's no firm that can totally reveal what they're doing. And I don't want to uh, describe the atmospheric conditions of either one. What I would say is that the dynamics among the partners in both of those firms are very, very, very healthy and very strong, and the way they think about and vet companies is actually quite impressive. I did see them vetting companies. And, and clinically analyzing them and deciding, hey, this looks amazing, but here's the gotcha. And that was a really great learning experience too. So I guess in a nutshell, the transition from recruiting where it's kind of transactional and you know you don't want it to be, but it kind of becomes transactional the bigger it gets. And you know getting into a situation where you're really studying a company and listening to people who study companies for a living and try to make investing, you know, informed investing decisions that involve tens of millions of dollars of capital, that's a very sobering reality and a very sobering education experience. So you live just north of San Francisco in Marin, yeah. I believe, mm -hmm. and you commute down to San Francisco? Yeah, mm -hmm. downtown. And do you typically go into the office each day when you're working with the venture firms? Would yeah. you go to a different firm? Yeah. Would you go visit companies? What is a typical day or during your venture period – what did a typical day look like yeah. for you? Thanks for asking. Now, it was a really neat experience because it was all very field-oriented. Before, you know, when you're running a big search firm, you're, you're sitting in the office a lot dealing with, like, HR conversations or finance or whatever. You're thinking about the running of the business. You're dealing with this partner, that partner, this employee, that employee, and you're in the office trying to run the company. And so you get farther and farther away from the customer. In this case, you are living with entrepreneurs, and you're hanging out with them. You're not trying to sell them anything. And so you build a lot of trust with them and learn a lot more about what they're really going through in a day-to-day. -day. So I wasn't really interested in my life, my day, my life. I was super interested in what the day in their life really was. I thought I knew. I had no idea. And when you say you were with them, would it be in the Red Point office, for example? Or I'd go to their office. South Park? I'd or? go to their office. We meet coffee shops. We'd go to you know Cafe Central or wherever. I mean, you meet people at South Park. You would do a lot of walk-in talks. That was neat. And, you know, I guess I, what so I – So a lot of meals, it sounds like. A little like, bit, yeah. Do you drive down to the city or do you take the ferry across? I'm <laughs> I serious. ride my bike it? to work. Oh, so you ride in. Yeah, That's right. Yeah. Okay. That's why I'm skinny. Okay. Yeah. Rain, shine, whatever. Yeah. You ride in. Do you get a shower before the first meeting? Yeah. Index okay. has a shower. It's a great facility. It's okay. Yeah. So to envision the day, it's a lot of – it sounds like 15-minute to 60-minute interactions where you're going from place to place in the city, visiting companies, in the index offices, red point offices, yeah. whatever. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, it's hard for them to envision just how many meetings you have in a given day. Yeah, could be 20 venture sometimes. capital. Yeah. It's tons. I mean, you, how do you have keep to keep track of it all. Like, oh, how do you know where to go for your next meeting? It's tricky. You have really smart people managing your calendar and keeping out of trouble. And had a great one at uh, Redpoint and a great one at uh, Index. Both of them were amazing. So maybe talk a bit about when you decided to get back into executive search. Yeah. What, I, what prompted that? Yeah, so I was actually going to start a company that was going to do market development where it was going to be an accelerator for startups. And I thought I could take my professional services scaling experience from search and apply that to market development and talent the way the Andreessen Horowitz kind of operates. And they're really a thing to behold. That machine these guys have built, 
on the EBCs, the Executive Briefing Center side, where they where they bring customers and portfolio companies together, and then the talent team. It's just incredible the investment they put into those functions. And I thought if the industry could replicate those functions but distribute them among you know five or six firms and have those firms syndicate and share portfolio companies and give those portfolio companies access to customers could and people. deliver a similar experience. You could deliver a similar experience, and, and you could amortize the costs, which is a really interesting factor. And, and for people that might not be familiar with the Executive Briefing Center, that would be where venture capital firm, in this case, Andreessen Horowitz, brings through big corporate companies that could partner with startups or could be early customers to to really help with that market development yeah. you're talking about, which yeah. is finding early customers, exactly. et cetera. It's a major, major value add. So, to that so what happened as you explored that? Well, it, was, it turns out that um, <laughs> I couldn't get enough of the superstar firms to fund it and share companies. So it was just sort of a, hey, I love the idea, but I don't really want to share. If I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it myself or try to do it with a little bit of a lean tiger team or I have a different approach or different philosophy on it. And, um, and I think that uh, – Oh, so nobody really wanted to well, they love partner the up on yeah, it. Exactly. They love the idea, but they don't really want to see their startup against so-and-so startup kind of in the same room duking it out. They kind of rather be you know, a little bit separate, and they want to keep themselves. And I understand it now in retrospect that, so that, you, know, that you don't really want – you want some hygiene between your competitors, portfolio companies, and yours. And it's completely understandable for the venture uh, scene to um, – for the venture firms out there to, to want – that approach. It's much more high touch. So you explored this and realized that that would work as well. And then what led to Artisanal? Thanks yeah. for asking. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I just developed an obsession about helping entrepreneurs because I am one myself. And it's just when you, when you understand the, the loneliness of an entrepreneur's journey and how much help they need and how hard they work to get companies off the ground and create jobs and a product and a service or whatever they're doing, you know, it's, it, it just gets in your bloodstream. So I said, well, what's my superpower in the world? My superpower is recruiting and my superpower is building companies. And, um, but I don't want to do it the way I used to do it. I want to do it sort of in a hybrid sense where, you know, if we do, if we, if we innovate on the business model of search, then we can hollow out our cost structure, not waste money on silly things that you just don't need. You don't need huge offices. You don't need, HR, you don't need a big finance organization. You don't need a lot of stuff. So you can work on fewer projects and go a lot deeper with companies. If you're going to do that, then you're really studying your clients. And what, if you're going to study your clients, why don't you put your capital behind them? So we've raised a, we actually have a fund with our own capital and we've deployed it in a bunch of. Oh, so do you clients. invest in oh, heavily, companies yeah. as Very well? Heavily, yeah. Like, have you disclosed the size of the fund or? No. Okay. Um, the fund is all our own capital for now. It is well into the seven figures. Um, and, you know, some of the investments I did before the fund was actually established were DocuSign, MuleSoft, thing called Forescout, Docker, Ripple, Snowflake is a big one. So there are probably – there are three that have exited meaningfully and three or four that we think are, are going to be pretty big. And from a client perspective, is it also a premium price for a premium product? Yeah. I mean we, are, we have exactly the same market pricing as our competitors, but what we try to do is we say, hey, you know, we're going to earn – a lot of our competitors will say, hey, we want, uh, we want equity for free and the cash. And the entrepreneurs chafe at that, but they don't have a lot of options, unfortunately. So they capitulate and they grouse about it behind closed doors. And what we decided is, hey, we're going to try to earn our way onto the cap table, earn the right to invest in you during the search. If you love the way the search went down and you feel inclined to open up some space in your Series C, let's get in there. Or if there's a secondary, maybe put us to the top of the list. And that's working actually quite well. They like the approach. They like the they like the um, the spirit of that. Put us putting skin in the game. And then during the course of the search, you get to study the company. It's like it's it, due diligence you couldn't pay for. And could you share a bit of the current status of the company? My company? Yeah. Yeah. We're growing absurdly fast, but only absurdly fast in so far as we can manage the growth. Like we're not taking too many projects on. We take a fraction of the workloads of our, of our uh, competitors who, by the way, are amazing in their own rights um, and in their own ways. But um, what about how many people? We're, eight pe we're almost nine people. We're going to add two more in the next couple of months. We have four partners going to five in January. And the company went from zero to about a seven million dollar run rate in the first six months, um, and you know that's not a big deal. I don't care about revenue anymore. I care about high quality clients. So we've got, I think, the who's who of the SaaS industry right now. We've got the best portfolio I've ever had uh, in terms of the profile of our clients and the quality of the clients is better than I ever had in 15 years running the last company.
That sounds pretty exciting. How did you find your core partners to work with on this? Two of them were my best employees or two of my best employees from my last firm. The, the old company is loaded with talent. They really are. They've got it. And they're very solid, great, great firm. And I'm very proud of that firm. Um, my name's still on the door or it's still the P. Very, very proud of that company. So I don't want to take anything away from them whatsoever. The two people that I just felt I really wanted to build something with. I didn't want to build another big company and go try to raid my own company. I just thought that, that, that was unethical. So it was just a couple of people that I knew wanted to build something with me. Did they come them. to find you? Say, hey, are you thinking about doing something again? Well, we were just good that? friends. We were just good friends. We spent a lot of time while I was doing venture, and we were just all kind of thinking about life, and I was thinking about life. And then <clears throat> when January came around and I decided, hey, this market development thing is going to fly. I want to add value. We, uh, we all got together. And then I grabbed another one who – found out about us and we, we get a lot of inbounds from partners from other search firms who are really interested in our model and then this one person alex zakopowski is his name is just a really captivating interesting person and i grabbed him too so we're four four partners strong and we have a really great um staff under us and when you take a look at executive search and what you're doing now as opposed to the venture capital time frame how is a typical day broken out and how is it different is there a lot more time on the phone a lot more time on email yeah yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, I tell you, the funnest, the most fun thing about being a recruiter, and I think a lot of people, if they don't like this piece, I, I just always tell them, hey, get out of the business. You got to love talking to people. <laughs> you you got to love. You got to be a hustler at the end of the day. You know, yeah, you got to be strategic. This business model works. That business model works. This person's perfect. That's all great. That's the intellectual side of it. But if you don't wake up every morning, charging out of bed, thinking about, I want to go grab someone, and then when they tell me no. I'm not going to take no for an answer. I'm not going to be obnoxious or unprofessional. Oh, I know. But it's the game of turning a no to a yes, and that's intoxicating. So the game now is about – I make I don't know, 50 to 60 phone calls every single day, even at my level in the industry. And if I, I, mean, I love it. It, gets, it just gives me a charge. What is it like for you when you go on vacation? Are you, do you cut that back to like 10 calls a day or 15 calls you, a day? You've got you to unplug a little You're bit. You're still making you, your yeah, goals? It's mostly email or the occasional call, this and that. But you know, your partners take over for you. And so they'll, they'll run things while you're gone, and that's really a neat part that's of That's a lot company. of calls. I, I do have to ask before we break, yep. how do you manage a call when the call needs to end? Well, you just tell people why it's got to end. It's time to go. You just tell them why. Okay. And then it takes the awkwardness out of the ending of the call. Okay. Well, with that, we need to take a short break. We'll be right back. I'll continue my conversation with Andy Price. I'm Rob Conivier, a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures, and you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Launchpad on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host this week, Rob Conybeer. I'm a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures. I'm continuing my conversation this hour with Andy Price. He is the founder and managing partner at Artisanal Talent Group. When we left off before the break, we were learning all about how executive search works, how it really works, and things that startups can do to better leverage executive search but now i'd like to go back a bit and uh, talk a bit about your past andy and where you came from you know unlike it seems like a lot of people that are in senior roles in silicon valley you're actually from the valley you, yeah. you grew up in north bay just north of san francisco um what what was your childhood like <laughs> yeah maybe i should lay down for this one <laughs> it was it, it was interesting my dad was a uh, a marine corps fighter pilot my two brothers and I were all uh, really highly competitive athletes. You basically lived outdoors. You, you're never inside watching TV. I don't even know if we had a TV. And, um, you know, it was a farm. It was a gentleman's farm. We had chickens and horses and all kinds of things. How far north were you? It was way up in the Sonoma County when there were nothing but horses and chickens. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was very underdeveloped at that time. It was the early 70s. So you and your siblings, and you were first, second, third? Number two. Number yeah. two. Yeah, Jan Brady. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and would you would you fight with your siblings at all or yes you would yeah okay daily. so that was the competitive yes yeah. okay yeah. I knew we were uh, I, I knew we were in trouble when my mom called the police on her own kids beating the heck out of each other that was kind of funny <laughs> whoa <laughs> yeah. okay all right 
Did you typically win or not? No, not so much. Okay. Yeah, I've won my share. Okay. But in all seriousness, you you have a ton of hobbies. What, What was your favorite hobby growing up? Well, since I was the worst athlete in the family, I basically found that if I just ran, then, you know, if I ran more, I'd run faster. So I became a, uh, uh, a nationally ranked runner at one point, and that's how I got, in co- got into, um, into college. So for a lot of people, when they run, they, they feel pain. And do you feel pain when you run, or was it something that it, you'd get to a point and you get to the runner's high and all that where you didn't really notice it, or how do you think about that? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think when you're um, a, a, competitive athlete, a competitive runner at that level, if you don't know how to abstract pain and get yourself literally out of your body, then you just you can't use a certain threshold. And I've talked to a lot of other distance athletes who had the same skill where you'd be in the middle of a race, you'd be hypoxic, well into your hypoxic stage. And what you'd do is all of a sudden you'd find yourself looking down in your body running. And that was really interesting. You literally have an out-of-body experience where you're, you're floating above yourself and you can't even feel it. You can't feel the pain at that point. And then uh, the race is over. It's really fascinating. So it goes by really quickly? It does, yeah. Now, is this a technique for you when you run competitively? No, I don't run anymore. The only reason I'd run now is if I was getting chased by a wild animal. Or, well, what know, about cycling? Because you do do a lot of cycling. I do, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, it's less impactful. It's easier on the body. Go farther. So when you were growing up, was there a time at which you started a company or you did something that was new other than the competitive sports? Yeah, I had something like four companies by the time I was 18. Four companies? I had a moving company, a landscaping company a ditch digging company and a uh, uh, sales company where I would take things like uh, I literally sold phone books door to door. So yeah, that was at least four. And would you do them yourself or would you start to hire people? Yeah, I would go to the, you know, get, I'd go to different companies and find out that they needed something done. And then, or I'd go door to door to round the neighbors and say, "Hey, I'm the local landscaper." <laughs> so you were very entrepreneurial. <laughs> would you bit. make a fair amount of money doing this? Yeah, made a ton of money. Yeah, low cost structure too. Did you start to learn different things about business building when you were doing that? No, it was utterly distribution clueless. or yeah, no, you're utterly just fee for service. Just looking so for, been, it sounds like looking for been, beer money. <laughs> sounds like you've been fee for service for a very long time. Actually, That's very long. Okay. Yes. So when you look at these different hobbies that you have. There's a long list here, singer, songwriter, avid road and mountain biker, surfer, sailor, diver, backcountry skier, custom motorcycle designer, climber, and global citizen are some of the things that I've heard to describe you. How do you, how do you find the time, and what's your favorite thing in there? Well, you just can't watch TV. You just don't waste time. So no TV. You just don't watch TV. I mean, you know, you might watch TV late at night, like a movie or something, which you kind of tune out. Um and then, you know, what you do is on the weekends, you, you know, I have three kids and I'd way prioritize them over any of these hobbies because they're way more interesting. Um, but yeah, you, you know, you, you get up on a Saturday morning, I, I wake up at five or six o'clock in the morning and I just hit it. And um, you squeeze a lot of activity out when you're not sitting around on the couch. I don't watch sports. I don't sit around and watch the Niners. I don't care about baseball or, you know, just don't care. I'm that guy who's totally clueless at the bar when you're talking about the latest Warriors injury or the why the Giants suck. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I could actually understand and identify with that. Yeah. You understand how the sports work. Oh, yeah. You understand how to set up a play or how to do those things, but you just don't really care. But about if you it. don't watch them, you get back like 10 or 12 hours a week, which you can apply to all these other things. So one of the things that we've talked about in the past, and you had heard this from – a venture capitalist over, I think it was Doug Leone over at Sequoia. You may or may not remember us talking about this in the past, but the idea of finding entrepreneurs, executives who are the best in the world at something. Mm. And I think you had mentioned that Doug Leone was the world's champion foosball player. North America. North America. Yes. He could have been global. Okay. Yeah. So maybe talk about that a bit, that philosophy, the idea of – People that are the best in the world at something, whatever it is. Yeah, it's fascinating. My um, my f- respect for Doug Leone is immense, and that's just he's just how he's wired. I think that's how that firm he's is. He's one wired. of the legendary, he's a legendary VC, and he's also a great human being. Still married to the same woman for I don't know eighty five thousand years now, and he's you know, love great dad. He's a great human being. People look at him and they go, "Oh, he's a hard nosed Italian guy from." whatever and he was the new york sales guy and he's kind of hard hitting he's a little hard to hear you know hard to listen to sometimes he's so direct but i think he's just coming from a place of passion and genuinely wanting his entrepreneurs to win 
I think the guy's a uh, one of the greatest VCs of all time, and uh, he applies that. And this, you know, this is interesting too. I'll bring you into an anecdote that has to do with a great CEO that feels the same way, um, who also does a ton of investing. Frank Slootman. We'll talk about him in one second. But tying off Doug. He looked me in the eye and he said, I just wanted to be the best at something, anything. And he's like, I was a bad athlete, so I played foosball. And I wasn't just good enough to win in a, in a bar game. I needed to be number one. And the way he looked at me with his penetrating you know, stare was fascinating. It just lit me up. I, I, I related to it really deeply. There really is something about entrepreneurs, people that are driven to be the best at something. At anything. Really anything. Have you ever seen... Donkey Kong, A Fistful of Quarters. Oh, of course, yeah. Okay. So maybe describe the movie then. <laughs> a Fistful of Quarters? Well, you, yeah, it's, it's literally, it is about people that want to be the best in the world yeah. at playing stand-up, arcade-style Donkey Kong. Oh, yeah. We all lived that in the 80s. I mean, and remember? they literally put hours and hours into becoming the very best at doing this. And they could, literally can't sleep. These people will play these games 20 hours a day. Do you see that in some of the executives that you recruit and the people that you think are the best at running companies? Um, rarely, to be totally honest rarely. with you, rarely, yeah. I mean, I look at guys like Frank Slootman, who to me is one of the greatest CEOs of all time, and he's the CEO of ServiceNow, just retired. And uh, Frank, you know, Frank, if he sails his boat to Hawaii, and he's got to win that race every year. And it's a two- or three-week grind out in the middle of the sea, and he just – he can't – he doesn't like winning by one boat length. He's got to win by seven. And when he wins by seven, he doesn't know why he didn't win by nine. He obsesses about winning. But it's not because he wants to put the other guy on the ground. He just wants to know he was great at pinning it. So he's very competitive. Very competitive. And you wanted to talk about it. But a internally bit. What's, much. What's his, what's his background? Frank is an immigrant. He's a Dutchman. Um, he was um, the uh, uh, kind of product line manager at a crummy old company that most of us forget about, which is Borland. And then um, he, my old firm, my partner in my old firm picked him up and put him into a CEO gig at Data Domain. He sold the company for $3 billion. Doug Leone hired him at ServiceNow. ServiceNow is worth $30 billion, and he built it. So um, you know, he took a product that was pretty interesting, and he turned it into a great company. Really a transcendental talent and a great human being. So do you think – you mentioned immigrant, Dutch immigrant. Yeah. And Leone's an immigrant too, by the way. Immigrants – have had a huge role in Silicon Valley. When you look at the people that have really been driven, the people that will put in 20 hours a day and do whatever it takes. 100%. This valley is not the valley without immigrants. It's just not. That's why everybody is so um, distasteful of the current administration. <laughs> and why why, why is it when you look at some of the most successful, in fact, most probably most of the successful Silicon Valley stories, it's driven by immigrants? Yeah, I just think it's because they don't have anything, and they're not entitled. Like you look at the kids around the U.S. I mean, I know this is so cliche, but you know, we we both seen it. We're trying to raise kids here, and um, it's just shocking. You know, they just they have too many resources. There is just no fear. They don't worry about whether they're going to eat. They don't worry about. They don't see their parents wondering whether they're going to make the rent or make ends meet. You know, they they grow up in these environments where, you know, academics are extremely. Highly valued. You know, I see a lot of Persians, a lot of, um, you know, a lot of Russians, a lot of people from all over the place, Asians, all over the place, Latin Americans. And, um, you know, I think that there's just a grunt, there's a grit and a determination that's literally taught to them when they're very young. And I think a lot of it has to do with with um, economic realities of where they come from. Because it's so low that everything's better. Exactly. I mean, look at Elon extent. Musk. I mean, Elon Musk wasn't, you know, a pop or like a poor kid in South America. I mean, South America, South Africa. But it's not like SA is a, you know, first world country either. It has something like 40% unemployment and you're, you know, at the end of apartheid and you're growing up there. And that's kind of a wild situation. So I think it just forges you into a really driven person that takes nothing for granted. And then you pour your heart and soul into the company because it defines you as a, as a professional a lot of these entrepreneurs actually aren't just doing it for the money because they're hungry and they grew up hungry. They're doing it because they have a passion and a conviction that's kind of an offspring. And it's an offshoot in my – it's actually a – it's a byproduct of that general drive. I don't think they do it because they grew up hungry. I think they do it because they grow up motivated. Does that make sense? Makes perfect sense. So if you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Connybeer, and you're listening to Launchpad on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Channel 132. I'm – here in the studio right now with Andy Price, who's a founder at Artisanal Talent Group. So 
when you take a look at the last, I mean, we've, we've known each other for almost two decades now. Yeah. When you take a look at the changes that have happened in Silicon Valley over the last 20 years, what are the biggest changes that you've seen? Uh, well, you know, it's interesting. Things are coming full circle because we grew up in the semiconductor era when we stood on the shoulders of all these chip guys, right, that built these really foundational difficult technologies, difficult, rigorous operating procedure, you know, building factories and what have you. And then we went to this thing that was like software, digital, web. I think we're going actually trending back towards harder technical challenges on these frontier categories because at some point we're going to get saturated with all the software and all these services and the fang effect and what have you. And um, I see kind coming, of all these app things yeah, and the, all app, these exactly. cloud software I love companies. them all. Love them all. But there's going to be a point where you go, hey, we're, we're saturated in every possible workflow. And everything we want to look at, we're being, you know, we, I have, right? Like you only look at and use something like 10% of the apps on your phone now. And it's, that number is shrinking, let's be honest. And so I think what's happening is I'm seeing a return to fundamental science that's on the edges right now. But I actually believe that we're going to, that we're going to see a resurgence of fundamental uh, technical investing. Like I was at Benchmark the other day and I have a really interesting semiconductor investment that's, that's a fascinating, you know, uh, uh, big bet, and you would never see a small firm like Benchmark taking a big bet on a really. Yeah, what are some of those areas that you think of when you think of fundamental technology innovation? Yeah, this is all about you know this is all about transferring data across uh, different arrays of semiconductors really efficiently without signal loss, data loss, what have you. And it's it's these things look like massive, um, almost like grid computing. That they're they're almost they're almost impossible to describe these new categories. It's not like you're just building an ASIC or a chip. You're building a completely new system architecture. And these are really ambitious projects. You know, uh, DFGA's got one. You know, a lot of people are starting to say, hey, you know, let's go take a bet on something. It could be an NVIDIA type of company. And so this is when people are thinking about new computing architectures. Yeah, yeah. So, for example, you look at NVIDIA, and they've built these graphical processing units, these, these cores that are able to do – power basically artificial intelligence in interesting ways exactly. where they can look at lots of images, put together classification, and power autonomous vehicles. Right. And they're really focused on that. Or you have people that are building quantum computers yeah. and these types of things. Is, is that what you mean, these different yeah, areas I just, like it, that? Those are just you know small examples and niches. I mean, there, there are all kinds of interesting things that you're just seeing percolating. And so I think that what's happening is the valley – so if I think about it thematically, I think – it's gone from this journey of deep science coming out of the universities, the research labs. Let's take it and turn it into a company, and we'll build something that's worth $100 billion, $200 billion, you know, the, the intels of the world. And then these massive things like Microsoft. That was like 20 years yeah, ago. Back when you and I started, Microsoft ago. was still a pretty small company, and Apple was kind of backwards, and all these things were you know, kind of trying to find their way. And you circle back now, you've got this massive institutional base of companies, that most of whom are rotting, the IBMs, the HPs of the world. And so that's just spawning so much opportunity to go tackle these these categories that have been kind of left for dead for a while. Oh, that they were supposed to be. They were supposed pushing to be. Forward. Yeah, you got like database companies. You got yeah, you have you have these institutions that are falling apart. Like I see Oracle, I see Oracle having existential threat, and you see the snowflakes of the world attacking a deep, you know, computer science challenge, an architectural challenge. And that's what makes that company special is a deep architectural insight into what a cloud-based high-performance data warehouse. So you think about it, even the software world, you're seeing a return to, to the value of intellectual property I think is slowly but surely happening. And I think the, um, that's kind of interesting, like a, a celebration of, of real innovation again. And then um, as opposed to, hey, I've got a clever thing and I'm just going to go see how hard I can flog it. I'll raise a ton of money. And I'll see if I can ramp this thing up and quickly sell it before anybody realizes I don't have a real company there. What do you think about areas like augmented reality and space and robotics and things like that? Very exciting. I wonder about the capital markets' um, tolerance and appetites to stay with those companies as they consume hundreds of millions of dollars. It's funny because you see these SaaS companies consume five, six, seven hundred million dollars before they get to critical mass, but people won't pour that kind of money into a company that could be Nvidia at a hundred billion plus. And that's funny. I mean, you, so you kind of wonder about. The cap, the mix, the mix of capital. It's kind of a trade-off because, on one hand, if the money was there, then you'd have more companies starting. Right. It's chicken and egg problem. And it goes back to the question of the really big outcomes are the ones that are contrarian. Exactly. And it's amazing how quickly 
capital flows into areas once something isn't contrary. That's exactly right. And I give a lot of credit to, uh, you know, guys like Vinod Kosla doing contrarian investing continuously. And then, you know, like I said, you know, Index has a really contrarian bet. You know, Redpoint has a really interesting quantum computing investment. And so I think all these firms that I stay close to seem to be having a willingness to take a few frontier bets on really deep scientific projects that would have big implications on humanity. And that's really exciting. But they're doing a couple yeah, fund. yeah, but you know you've got to make money for your investors, and what's making money right now in the capital markets leads to where you're going to put money in the private sector, right? As you know, you have to have some comps and some exits, otherwise your your business of returning capital to LPs gets a little shaky. So for people that are early in their careers and they're interested in starting companies, what what advice do you have for people? <sighs> Specialize. You know, I know this sounds cliche. A lot of people have been saying specialized, but I just don't think you can be the jack of all trades and the ace of nothing. I think you almost have to think of your career starting out as a vocation. Become amazing at something to the Doug Leone, you know, anecdote or story. And I think the um, the thing is just that if people see that you're willing to do the work and you discipline yourself like you would in as being a competitive runner or cyclist or whatever, you apply that to becoming epic at something, whether it's like product or engineering or finance or whatever, you know, building business models or whatever, you know, become incredibly good at something and go very deep in your, in your, uh, in your expertise and defend that expertise. That's like your turf. If you become good at that, then people go, well, I'm going to be a pigeonhole. And that's just not right. Well, it's interesting because jump to another one. People do worry about that pigeonholing piece. Yeah, they do. And I think it's really overblown because you, you, Fundamentally, you can't specialize in everything. Right. You can't become the best at everything. But if you go really deep in an area, you learn how to identify people that mm. are really good at what they do in other areas. Exactly. Because you learn about the subtleties that set somebody apart when they're the best in finance or they're the best in marketing. Right. People that are really good or world-class in an area truly and understand it, they can recognize the same in other areas. That's exactly right. And they're curious enough to go do the work to discover what great looks like, soak in that knowledge, and then learn how to implement it. Yeah, right? and, and not have people BSing them. Exactly. I mean, they what can I s- sniff BS from That's, people, even okay. if it's in an area they don't know anything about. That's exactly they're right. they're best at what they exactly do. Exactly right. And you know what? I always tell people, like, the other thing is tell your kids, don't just go out and join, you know, Silly Company Inc. that you had no reason why you went to the company. Study the landscape of companies that are out there hiring. Try to figure out a thesis. Join something that's going to be great or already is great. Learn what great looks like early in your career. If you learn what great looks like, you kind of learn the operational procedures of, of a LinkedIn kind of company or a Splunk or one of these interesting you know, things that are at scale, running really interesting companies that are growing really solidly. You learn companies like that. How do they operate? How do they make trade-offs? How do they resource? What, what, do, they, what do they do every day? I mean, what do the different departments do, and how do they work together? And so that, that, so it kind of means go join one of those companies. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that p- young people don't have any direction where people are saying, hey, actually have a thesis when you graduate. Hey, don't just get a job. Don't just take a job. When you start your senior year, you should be studying the industry you want to participate in. And likely it's going to be tech because financial services is dying, as we know. It make, you know it's, it's, it's dying. Let's put it that way. And, and I think a lot of people, even venture people that I know, very successful ones would say to young people, you know, go into industry, and then if you find your way into venture, that's fine. But right now, don't just think you're going to go jump into some VC firm and you're going to go make billions of dollars. Ridiculous. Most of the best VCs, like Doug Leone, carried a bag, built something. They're at guys like Mike Volpe, running Corp Dev at Cisco, running a startup. These people are operators. You know, and a lot of these people um, have actually lived a day in the life of the entrepreneurs that they're serving, and I think that's a me- major skill. So yeah, the, the younger people always tell them like. Go find a really great company, a great rocket ship. Learn a ton. Study it. Don't jump around every five seconds. You get a $5,000 raise from this company or that company. What does that mean in practice, not every five seconds? Does it mean be somewhere for at least two or three years? Yeah, or I think five so. Years, yeah. two or three I years? I think two to three years and you're younger. And, you know, if you do five or ten, it's kind of an opportunity cost, right? You shouldn't spend ten years at Facebook. You shouldn't spend ten years anywhere. It's kind of a five years, two, three, and then it gets two, to three, five. maybe five. Yeah. Okay. But you don't f- be around for the gold watch. No, exactly. Okay. You just you get stale. So maybe stepping back to the macro and – Again, talking about the 20 years you and I have been running around in in Silicon Valley, do you think Silicon Valley is going to be just as 
competitive as an important in another 20 years? Or do you think that the world is changing where other areas, other countries are moving ahead very quickly? Well, that's an epic question. That's a great question. I actually think the biggest challenge to Silicon Valley is California. California is so un, so ungovernable, so upside down, tax policy, cost of living, transportation, infrastructure. We have an $800 billion or something unfunded pension liability. It's just – it's endless. California is on shaky ground and it's being held up by tax revenues from tech companies, as we know. As soon as that tax – remember those tax revenues died off in 2004 when we fired Gray Davis, the governor, over it, right? They thought it was about power. It was really about the, the sinking – it was about the, it was about the massive you know, sinkhole in the budget. And I think that's the existential threat to Silicon Valley, which is why you see the Googles and the, Asp- and the Apples and the Facebooks and all these things. All these institutions, the Amazons of the world, are not making – big California expansion plans right now. Yeah, because you have Facebook and Google and others are building out serious engineering, not just support, but engineering in Seattle and Austin and other places around the country and the world. And guess what? Carnegie Mellon. You know, these are distributed institutions. MIT. I mean, these are, you're going to see a resurgence in places like Boston and you're going to see a very distributed tech community in the U.S. I don't subscribe to the notion that, you know, China is going to come and knock us off. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. I think the biggest challenge to the Valley is that the Valley won't be the epicenter. If you look at a young kid, you know, one of your kids, I know you have many of them. I have five kids. Yeah, five. And yeah, I mean, that's, it's incredible. So when you look at them and you say, hey, are you going to build a career in California? I look at my kids and I say, I don't think I would build a life here. How can you say this to a young kid? You're going to pay the tax. You're going to pay the cost of living. How do you save? How do you buy a house? You can't say that credibly to young people. You look at immigrants. You say, yeah, come from Romania to California. You'll be able to afford to live here. It's out of control, and if something's not done about that, California will implode on its own, and Silicon Valley will just become dispersed throughout the country. What are your favorite areas in the U.S.? And we've got about a minute, minute and a half here. But what are your favorite areas in the U.S. outside of California for somebody building a career? Straight to Seattle. Straight to Seattle. Yeah. Okay. And why is that? Because there are tectonic shifts occurring in tech that are being um, really explored and deployed in Seattle, like cloud, like health tech, digital health. Very interesting time yeah. out there. Yeah, and you had Microsoft turned it around yeah, absolutely. and is a leader again. Absolutely. Amazon goes without saying, and then you have Boeing and you have Nordstrom. There's I mean, no, you have and like, there's no tax? No state income tax. It certainly helps. Nobody's allowed to talk about it, but it certainly helps. <laughs> yeah. So any final pieces of advice? We've got about 45 seconds here for people starting out. No, I appreciate that you went on the topic of trying to be great at something, anything. Just being great at anything outside of work will drive you to be great at work. And you know, take your craft seriously, whether you're a recruiter or a venture capitalist or you know, a product manager. And take that craft and bleed it. You could know? be anything. Could be writing. Anything. Could be could quarters. Be yeah, could yeah. Be, yeah, could be running a city government. Could be any of those things. Absolutely. Well, that's great. Well, thanks again. Really appreciate it. Thanks I, I kind of want to ask for you to sing us a song as we go out here, but I'm not going <laughs> not gonna to do that. I'm going to um, do that to you. But, it, but Andy, thank you so much for joining us thanks today. Thanks for having me, Rob. And for people that want to keep up with what you're doing and the work that you're doing, where should they go? Their website, artisanaltalent.com. Okay. And what about just following Andy? LinkedIn. Okay. Best way. Okay. Best, not yeah. on Twitter. Yeah. That's smart. Okay. Well, that just about does it for today's show. Thank you all for joining us. You can follow Business Radio on Twitter at BizRadio132. And to follow me, I blog regularly at 280.vc, or you can follow me on Twitter at Rob Conybeer. I'd like to thank today's guests. We had Jonathan Matis and Andy Price. Thanks also to our producer, Dana Cash, assistant producer, Charlene Goto, and our engineer, Jeff Simmons. And thank you for joining us on today's show. I'm Rob Conybeer, a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures, and you've been listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 